Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Helix Center for our May 1, 2021 uh, roundtable. Today, we have a very interesting group of folks that help us uh, understand and talk a little bit about the concept of stress, which, of course, is, uh, is in the air these days for various reasons. I will be We'll be going into a lot of that. So I think without no further ado, I'll start to introduce our panel today. Uh, and I'll, I'm Jerry Hurwitz. I'm Associate Director of the Helix Center and a, uh, a psychiatrist, practicing psychiatrist in New York City. So first, Allison Avery is the Vice President of Inclusion and Community at Dow Jones, a leading global diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. She has expertise as both a practitioner and strategist, organizational culture, learning, and development. She has held senior uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and people team roles at Skaden, Arps, Slate, Nager, and Flom, uh, NYU Langone Health and Hospital Systems, and the NYU School of Medicine as the first director of diversity and inclusion. In an advisory capacity, Allison was a principal consultant with work, Working Mothers Media, partnering with global 500 companies on cultural change strategies. There's much more to say, but in the interest of time, I'm going to move on to our next panelist, Ben Bernstein. Ben Bernstein is a psychologist, educator, and author with an expertise on performance and test stress. An honors graduate of Bowdoin College, Bernstein received his doctorate in applied psychology from the University of Toronto and later a master's degree in music composition from Mills College. An educator for the last 50 years, Bernstein has taught at every level of educational system, trained in London in the progressive British infant schools in the late 60s. He has received major grants from the American and Canadian governments for his work. Charles Marmer. Charles Marmer is Lucius N. Litauer, professor and chair of the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Langone Health and is director of the NYU Langone Health for Precision Medicine for, in Alcohol and Use Disorder, Alcohol Use Disorder and PTSD. Dr. Marmer's major research interests are post-traumatic stress disorder, peritraumatic dissociation, peritraumatic distress, Vietnam veterans, police officers, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, risk factors, MRI, MRS, fMRI, acoustic startle, cortisol, HPA axis, catecholamine, and so on and so forth. And lastly, Ralph Wharton. Ralph Wharton is a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. His work is focused on the clinical use of psychotropic medicines alone and in conjunction with psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. His clinical research in the use of lithium carbonate in the effect of psychosis was noted in the special sesquicentennial issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry and was republished there as one of its best in its 150 years as a publication. He has published numerous other papers on diverse topics in psychiatry, including the use of methylphenidate, electrical stimulation of the brain, and phantom limb pain. Professor Wharton was honored as the president of the Society of Practitioners at the Columbia Medical Center and was practitioner of the year in 2010. He's a founding member of the International Society for the Study of Pain and has presented many papers on this subject. 
We are also going to have as co-moderator today, Beverly Zabriskie, who many of you know is on the executive board of the Helix Center and is also a practicing Jungian psychiatrist, psycho, psychoanalyst, sorry. So here we go. Um, Dr. Warden, would you care to introduce the topic for us and we'll get things, get things going? You have to unmute. Okay, uh, so it's a pleasure to be here and uh, Beverly's done a wonderful job in organizing this panel of experienced people, veterans of all kinds of uh, stresses themselves. Uh, I'll give a little brief history about the use of the term. We can start with uh, Walter Cannon, who in the uh, late 30s uh, determined some studies about homeostasis basis about how the body regulates itself, and then go on to Hans Selye, who uh, published the first books using the term stress. And having done his work in Canada, he determined that the term was lure stress, because there were only male doctors in doing these studies at that time. So lure stress has been adopted around the world. Uh, stress has a variety of meanings in every culture. And uh, looking up some of the definition of the words, even in China, uh, the word stress is used, but it's, the symbol also is crisis. So we can say stress is a crisis in one level or another, but he was interested in how people adapted to stress. One of the landmark studies was done by Philip Hench, who was a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic who noted that pregnant women who had arthritis had their arthritis improve. And he studied and discovered that during the stress of pregnancy, when arthritis improved, the adrenal glands turned out more cortisone. And that won him, along with a fellow named Kendall, the Nobel Prize in understanding the internal response to bodily stress of all kinds, but the first stress was that of pregnancy. Um, also, other stress studies were done uh, by a fellow named Norbert Wiener, who was one of the beginners of uh, use of computers, and he determined and studied people who had chronic stress, which is different than acute stress, which results as a, uh, as a result of having TB, so he did some studies. Uh, most importantly thereafter, the doctor who was the uh, physician for all of the American Navy uh, developed what he called the SRRS scale, which was the social readjustment rating scales. And what he did was in the Navy, if you would get promoted, you started out with the PT to go to a battleship, uh, a destroyer, battleship, aircraft carrier, submarine. And even though you were getting promoted, the advancement in pay and status, every family was stressed by promotion. And his scale uh, goes on. Now today, uh, and in fact, in the 1980s, just to give another update a little bit, uh, Time Magazine published a uh, article with a picture of a doctor in front saying that was the 
era of stress. The 80s was a year of stress. Of course, there are other people like Paul Ekman who dealt with facial expressions of stress. And then uh, Stephen J. Gould wrote uh, a book called A Wonderful Life as if we were stress-free, which uh, we're obviously not. And even uh, Stephen Pinker, another who wrote a book about our better angels that we could live with stress and go off to heaven. The, the most important thing I think in terms of studies that I've done and Charlie Marmer has done is about how the adrenal gland helps us adapt to stress. And on a hormonal basis, it's simple to talk about glucocorticoids and mineral corticoids, which is the body's response to stress. But nevertheless, the use of the term is dependent on who's using it, whether it's a psychologist, a psychoanalyst, a surgeon, we all use stress uh, kind of loosely. And the problem for today is the stress, obviously, of the pandemic. I don't think there's anybody who uh, isn't aware of that stress and the stress of isolation in addition to the fear of illness. So in terms of the demand for uh, work on this subject, everybody in this panel has a point of view. Um, my experience, as uh, you've alluded to in the introduction, Jerry, was in patient care at a hospital. And in hospital stress, if you're having an amputation or if you're having a heart transplant, uh, the stresses are unique and indescribably highly individualized. So it's hard to have a field theory of stress. And the other question would be, even in terms of, oh, this is my last point about the cold pressure test. There are people in New York who go into the water and cold water, and presumably, and there's some, this is the latest theory, uh, that cold exposure can perhaps immunize you to stress. So people who repeatedly go in the cold water seem to have a lesser stress response. On the other hand, if you're an Eskimo and you move from Alaska to California, you lose that, you deal with the stresses in California. So that would be my introductory comments. So, thank you. I think that um, one of the things that uh, appealed to me with this uh, topic was how stress really traverses such a huge sort of vertical column of scientific and sociological issues. You know, there's an intracellular stress response, as stress at a cellular level in terms of the functioning of the, the cells to the organs to the individual and to society. And I think it's a great place to start, Ralph, to talk about the status of uh, our current social situation and how much that's engendered uh, stress in a lot of us and how do we deal with it and how it's different from just a challenge. It was really Ralph's organization, the Nathaniel Wharton Fund webinar that stimulated the idea and desire to have this program on stress. So. Ralph, your, your group is doing just wonderful work of study on it. And one of the uh, features of the pandemic era, I think, is that it has really, and also the Black Lives Matter movement, is that it's really shown that we have not only individual stresses, but group stresses. 
And so I'm hoping we can get a little bit into that. What is the, the individual experience of stress and what is it, some identity issue or group issue that stimulates stress as well? I'm happy to jump into the discussion. Uh, thank you, uh, Ed and Jerry and uh, the panel for inviting me and Ralph for uh, your scholarly historical review. I thought maybe Ralph, I would just jump on at the end of that review and talk about just briefly some very contemporary ideas of stress. Uh, the first thing to say is that uh, as someone who's spent my life studying survivors of catastrophic stress, uh, that we have to sharply differentiate between stressor and stress response. Uh, this problem was first addressed in mechanical engineering before it was in human psychology. So to take the example of a bridge, a very strong bridge built according to the most advanced structural principles can with, withstand enormous repeated stressors and maintain structural integrity. A structure like a bridge which is weakened uh, may be taken down by relatively minor stresses. That the same is true in the balance between stress and coping in humans and animals, that there's a balance between stressors and stress response, vulnerability and resilience. So it's a very, very complicated area. So we have to dis differentiate between the stressor and the stress response. Second, in humans, in human psychology and psychiatry, we now consider two broad classes of stressors, uh, uh, maybe three. One, normal stresses of everyday life that lead to adaptive responses and growth. Second, stressful life events, Ralph, which you briefly alluded to, but include uh, promotions, demotions, life transitions, marriages, divorces, losses, economic uh, fortunes made and lost, uh, changes in homes where we live. Uh, these are captured in stressful life measures. And we know in general, if people are exposed to too many of these otherwise somewhat normative stressful life events, that they're more prone to physical illness and to psychiatric problems of stress, anxiety, and depression. Uh, when people have a prolonged abnormal reaction to one of these more everyday life stressors, we call it an adjustment disorder, either uh, a predominantly anxious reaction or predominantly a dysthymic uh, depressive reaction. And the third group are catastrophic stressors, such as sudden death of a family member, sexual assault, uh, the uh, most extreme aspects of structural racism, uh, 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 war, military service, police service, uh, domestic violence, uh, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse of children, and so on. And these lead, can lead in some vulnerable people to acute and chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. So there are three very broad dimensions of stress. Uh, normal stress, stress related to everyday 
life experiences which and changes and catastrophic stressors. Any of these can be single or repeated. The final thing is um, a couple of the ideas of Bruce McKeown, uh, who is one of the most uh, important contributors to the psychobiology of stress. He, uh, uh, Bruce unfortunately recently passed away, but was a highly distinguished professor at Rockefeller University and a friend. And, and Bruce uh, has contributed many things to the stress literature. A few of his ideas, which I think are very important. First, Bruce asked the question, which is the organ, the human organ of stress response? And his conclusion was, while the entire body responds to stress, as you mentioned, Jerry, beginning at the cellular level, all the way up to the society level, Bruce regarded the brain as the primary organ of stress uh, for three reasons. First, the brain interprets the significance and relative threat of stressful experience. And stressors only become unmanageable and pathologic when they're perceived to be threatening and unmanageable. So for the first thing is the brain, the brain gets to say whether this stressful experience is dangerous or not. If a danger signal is registered cognitively, the brain second mobilizes multiple body defense systems. Uh, changes the distribution of blood flow, changes immune functioning to protect you if you bleed, changes endocrine functioning to protect you if you're infected, changes the immune system and many other changes. So first, the brain interprets the stress. Second, it directs the neuroendocrine, neuroimmunological, um, and, um, and other systems that are mobilized to try to allow for a successful adaptation to stress. And the third reason McEwen said that the brain is the primary organ of stress is that the brain itself is profoundly changed by repetitive, unmanageable stress. The brain is remodeled neuroanatomically in terms of neural connectivity and, and in terms of neurotransmitters. And when stress is unremittent, and unmanageable, it predisposes to a variety of conditions, especially chronic depression. So uh, the final idea of, of McEwen's, which I found particularly interesting, and Bruce devoted a great deal of his professional life to this idea, is that we are all as the human is a very rugged organism and designed to tolerate stress so that when stress occurs, there's a response he called an alloplastic response, meaning an adaptive biological, psychological, and cognitive response to stress to adapt to it. McEwen's view of this, however, was there's a cost to be paid for allostasis. And with each adjustment we make, to a stressor, there is a metabolic and psychological cost. And if there are too many of these, the system breaks down. And that uh, leads to an allostatic uh, driven collapse in the functioning of the organism. So I, th I think Ralph, just to uh, kind of take your story to the, the current laboratory level, that, that, that those are some of the clinical and neurobiological aspects of stress. One last observation from our work and others on traumatic stress, although it is normal to have a robust 
uh, cortisol, glucocorticoid response to an acute stressor, and that's a healthy response. Among individuals who fail to mount an adequate cortisol response to stress, as in measured in their, in their plasma or urine or saliva or other cortisol measures, they are very prone to getting to psychiatric difficulty if they can't effectively mount an adequate cortisol response to stress. They end up having runaway adrenaline reactions and are prone to post-traumatic stress. So I'll, I'll leave it at that point. Um, thanks, I would love to jump in here. Um, we've together what Ralph talked about and what Charlie talked about, particularly starting with the uh, difference between the stressor and the stress response. So um, a lot of people I deal with are test takers from board surgeons uh, who have to take, from uh, ER surgeons who have to take a national board exam to high school students who have to take the SAT. And um, invariably people come to me and they say, uh, Dr. B, stress, a test stress me out. And I show them a piece of paper like this. And I say, you mean to say that this piece of paper with these four letters on it are actually like jumping off the table and choking you? And then they laugh. And um, what I'm pointing out to them is the test is a piece of paper with, with print on it. It's, it is not doing anything. So what then we do is we look at what their stress response is. And one of the things that I've seen, and I think this is really pertinent to what we're talking about on a very basic level, is that watching, having watched thousands of people take tests, one of the first things that they do when they open the test booklet and they start to read the first item is that they gasp and they start holding their breath. So the signals, as you all know, that the brain is getting is that there's something really dire going on here. And they continue doing that for three hours, which is one reason by why people are so exhausted. So that stress response builds, the exam gets harder, they have more difficulty um, of dealing with it. You know, I've trained people, I've trained high school kids to raise their SAT scores 200 points by regularizing their breath through the course of the test. So the point about this is, is that the stress response is where, you know, I put all of my energy is tra training people how to, what I call stay connected because my sense is, is that when people are faced with a stressor, one of the, the, the things that, that engenders a bigger and bigger stress response is the way that they, they disconnect. Either in the body, they freeze, or in the mind, they tell themselves, I can't handle this. Or in the spirit, they are like, um, they get completely distracted. They can't stay on task. So, you know, putting all this together, I'm, I'm a long-term student of uh, all the Eastern arts of meditation, particularly the Vedic scriptures. And it's all about being in the present, staying in the present. How do we get back to the present? When I give a talk to an audience and I talk about the breath, I see people roll their eyes like, oh, he's gonna talk about breathing. Oh my God, you know, I've heard all about breathing, right? I gave a talk at NYU. <laughs> One of the students came up to me in the break and was like really irate. And I've, I, I've done the breathing thing. Well, you know, if you've done the breathing thing, you'd be dead and we're all doing the breathing thing. But these basic, these basic skills of, of responding to stress, life has, is stressful. It's stress, it's just filled with tests. Big tests, little tests, the whole world is involved with one. My wife and I are supposed to leave for India in two weeks you know, US government has just clamped that down. 
We have friends there who have friends who are family that are dying in droves now. It's how we, how we respond to these situations that really is what I feel what we really need to educate people about, how to respond much better than learning about tangents and, and um, quadratic equations and things like that, which can all be helpful, but life skills are really where it's at. And I think this combination, just wanna show one other thing quickly. And um, I'm gonna, I, I asked if I could just show one slide here because I think this also helps. Um, let's see, here it is. So uh, Ralph mentioned a lot about history in the early part of the 20th century, two psychologists named Yerkes and Dodson studied how stress affects performance, except they talked about it as arousal. Well, we can't really use the word arousal in the same way they did because it's now conflated with um, a lot of other life experiences. Uh, but uh, this is so helpful. And I show this to everyone that I work with and they found it's a bell curve, too little stress, performance goes down, too much stress, performance goes down. And then there's just the right amount of stress which is per individual, by the way, and everybody's optimal level is different, where you actually are at an optimal level of performance. And this is not about what's happening to you, it's about how you're responding to stress response to the situation. And when you can keep your stress level at a more optimal level, you get inspired creative work and you can really work much better with others. So I thought this is an, also an important thing. Athletes call that the zone. When athletes talk about it, they talk about it like, oh, now, man, I get into the zone as if it's magical or mystical or something. It's not. It's actually a state of consciousness, which you can affect by, by being trained and training yourself to become aware when your stress response is building and then to use specific tools to get you back. So I hope that that adds to the conversation. Allison. I think. Thanks, Beverly. I think it was time for me to jump in as well. So thanks. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here as well. Um, and one of the things that was not mentioned in my introduction that I will just uh, illuminate is, is how I know Beverly Zabriskie. And the, the, the way is that I both have a hat in working in organizations, as well as corporations, really looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as um, culminating the, my psychoanalytic training as a Jungian psychoanalyst. So I had a private practice as a psychoanalyst for nine and a half years, and I'm, I'm finishing the arc of that. So I'm always very interested in, as we spoke about, the, the intra-psychic all the way up to the organizational level, given both uh, fields of work that, that I have done. And so stress is something that obviously, as we talked about, it, it exists, I liked the, the framing of the intracellular level all the way up to the kind of global level and everywhere in between. And so in, in my work, I really am looking at the dimension as it relates intrapsychically, but the bulk recently in my organizational roles has been on, a, on an individual interpersonal team as well as department and org level and looking at how primarily stressors disproportionately impact different communities and affinity groups. And, and we know that in the United States, women report higher rates of stress um, in their lives than men. Mothers report higher rates than fathers. People of color report higher rates of stress than white people. These are all due to factors like stress of racism, discrimination, and all the isms that, that we can kind of list as well as historical antecedents of inequity. And so in, in April, the CDC actually 
came out and claimed racism a serious public health threat. And, and that speaks to something that Charles was mentioning related to the catastrophic dimensions is that a lot of stress can be mitigated through condition setting. And so how do we take seriously what are some of these elements from research in creating conditions that ameliorate and mitigate certain stressors that actually are disproportionately experienced by varying communities. And that's something that I'm really interested in because that manifests very clearly in the workplace. So how do these kind of social stress situations of the disproportionate impact of COVID on communities of color, the disproportionate impact of, of stress and, and discrim around discrimination, as well as witnessing a violence and secondary trauma and the impact of stress caused by poverty, how does that disproportionately impact communities? And all of that gets brought into the workplace, which undermines people's ability to, to thrive, to have impact, to perform at their highest level. So how do we set different types of conditions in order to address and redress that is something that is a big arc and focus of my work. And so when looking at one of the great benefits of having the research that everyone has, has gone through, as well as the CDC coming out and articulating the, the severe um, inequality that is engendered through racism, but also noting that racism is considered a serious public health threat that directly affects the well-being of millions of Americans. And so it directly affects the, the health of the entire nation is that it creates a level and degree of seriousness, which I have seen change over the course of the past year. And that's been something from, from stress being think, thought about as a general well-being to also social stress and how it exists on levels to be taken at a different degree of seriousness within the workplace and in corporations than I have forthwith. And what I mean by that is putting in things in place like social support systems for employees, actually giving days off to, to participate in protests. That's something a lot of corporations did taking day offs in order to mourn police killings uh, for communities of color who were disproportionately impacted or felt as though that was a secondary trauma and needed time in order to mourn. That was something a lot of institutions and organizations were creating. Also different celebratory events to highlight and lift up the difference of impact. So there's kind of the global impact of COVID at large, but how do we talk about the context and the specificity felt by different affinity groups and populations and hold and balance the both particular as well as the overarching context is something that a lot of organizations and corporations have been doing that has really led to a different experience of employee well-being and, and, and holding a lot of sessions dealing specifically with social stress, addressing that social stress as a result of discrimination or structural racism and having candid conversations is something that I have not seen in my tenure within diversity, equity, and inclusion work for the past 15 years in such a way that the seriousness of both the stress and stressors and the seriousness of employee well-being is at a different level that is actually changing policy, practice, engagement, and corporate um, structure. So that's something that, that I'm bringing from a kind of organization and, and structural level of, of the value that I think we're, we're at in being able to take racism, conditions around stress, and the actual existence and reality of stress as something serious that we might need to be proactive in set conditions for. So, so that's something that I'm, I'm 
been thrilled about the, the impetus with regard to that, but also that is something new that I've seen emerge as a result of COVID and as a result of consciousness around structural racism that has allowed for a difference in um, setting conditions more intentionally. I, I'd like to mention one individual stress, our man who survived stress in the military. I met a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. The man was about five foot three, maybe weighed 130 pounds. And I very much wanted to meet him since it was unique in my military to meet this fellow. And I asked him about winning the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was a sergeant at the time. He unwittingly led a group of men, about 50 or 60 men, into an ambush. And the ambush was in Korea. And they were being raked by a machine gun, three people running a machine gun, sw swinging it back and forth. All the men are on the ground. In the midst of this situation, three men managing the gun. This guy stands up, rushes ahead, and kills three people with a shovel. And I looked at this guy, and I could not believe that what he did. He acted in this way, under stress, to save his men, and won a Congressional Medal of Honor. The second kind of stress that I would mention was a man named Schellenberger, who landed the airplane in the Hudson River. Uh, saved all those lives. Everybody did the right thing. And he did exactly the right thing and had a post-traumatic stress response. He did fine related to the AMA. He did the right thing on automatic pilot, the way presumably this guy did who killed three people. We won't call that automatic. But at any rate, he saved all those lives. But afterwards, he had a tremendous stress when he realized how he reacted. On the other hand, in Korea, a lot of soldiers never fired their guns. They found them dead. So some soldiers did something heroic or heroic, and other people ran away. So that's part of the fight or flight. But the most important thing I would mention as the last is the studies we're doing now, some research about women during pregnancy being stressed. And we're doing some studies on EEGs and fMRIs and newborns up to two years old. And the question is, when the mother is stressed during pregnancy, how much of her stress gets through the placenta? How does it affect cortical development? And whether some people, if the mother has been starving, as many mothers did in the Netherlands when the Nazis were invading, they didn't eat properly. And so they had a lot of children who were very vulnerable. On the other hand, most mothers, in spite of the stress they're under, manage to develop a newborn, but we don't know, and we're trying to figure out how stress might be transmitted through the placenta. We know the blood goes through some immunological thing, but neurologically, we don't know. And so we're doing some studies on, do some people have built-in resilience or built-in fight or flight? The third thing, as uh, it was mentioned, is freeze. Some people fight, flight, or freeze. So these reactions are so diverse, and these are individual social situation, not the group things that Allison is talking about, which is a different realm of experience. I think that's incredible, Ralph. Uh, both, both of your vignettes, vignettes really resonate with my lifelong experience. First on the military side, I also had the experience of for many years consulting with NASA and the Russian Space Administration. 
And uh, as you can imagine, they have very specialized training techniques to try to train the astronauts and cosmonauts to be able to tolerate enormous sudden stress and maintain cognitive control. The most famous, of course, is the Apollo 13 mission in which Swaggart was quoted to have saying, Houston, we have a problem, which was not an exact quote, said something like, Houston, um, we're having a problem here. But the problem was that in about 90 seconds, his crew was going to be incinerated into molecules because of an error in the reentry trajectory. And they were remarkably able to maintain cognitive control in the face of imminent catastrophic death and make an aversive move. That uh, speaks to their selection and training. So that's, it's very, very interesting to study, to study super stress resilient groups like Navy SEALs, astronauts, and cosmonauts and try to learn from them how we can all cope with stress better. Second, I'm very interested in the work you're doing, Ralph, with uh, pregnant mothers and would like to uh, contact you after this program because we're starting a similar project at NYU. I'd love to collaborate with you. But Alison, to come to one of the issues, when we looked uh, with Fritz Francois and others at, at NYU at areas uh, where we can make a difference in structural racism in medicine, we decided in psychiatry that probably the most profound point of entry uh, to, to uh, uh, act against structural racism, even more profound than making accessible empathic care available to all people, including all uh, groups of color, is uh, actually conditions of pregnancy. Because, uh, it, because of, we, we know enough from animal models and some human studies and the work you're beginning to do, Ralph, that stress during particularly during the second and third trimester of pregnancy is profoundly dangerous to the developing, to the mother, of course. Uh, and we know that, for example, black young mothers have multiple times the rates of death and morbidity and mortality related to pregnancy uh, nationally and even higher in the New York City area. So of course, adverse conditions during pregnancy uh, are huge risk factors for maternal mortality and morbidity. But something that has not been studied yet well enough, and Ralph, I'm delighted to hear that your group is beginning this, is to look at the impact on the developing fetal brain, particularly during the second and third trimester of pregnancy of severe high levels of stress, as well as other problems such as nutritional deficiencies, exposure to bad air, uh, bad water, bad food and other conditions, because it, the, the data currently suggests that the origins of most very serious psychiatric illnesses, particularly schizophrenia and autism, probably have their origins at the time the brain is organizing itself during the second and third trimester of pregnancy, not during teenage years, which has been considered to be the prodrome for psychosis, but backing all the way up to pregnancy and that high levels of stress, which are pro-inflammatory, may disorganize neural circuitry and, and, uh, and molecular 
organization and favor towards the development of the lifelong risks of psychosis. So if we, from my perspective, Ralph, if we were to change one thing in medicine and especially in consultation liaison medicine and psychiatry, it would be to focus on conditions of pregnancies and bring health equity to all young mothers because their lives are at stake and their children's entire developments at stake. I wanted to uh, jump in and go back and tie into this topic about pregnancy. One of the nice things about uh, touching on the topic is it's something that about half the population might have, or almost half the population might have experience with. Uh, it's interesting, the stories of heroism we just heard, and I, I love hearing those, I always have, you know, they are sort of, uh, I don't know what you'd say, they're heartwarming, they're inspiring. But of course, um, it's interesting that they also push us away from the people and the experiences where stress overwhelmed the person, let's say, and they did not have such a heroic outcome, right? And I think, I wonder if that has a negative impact socially in that when people don't wanna think about a horrible experience, let's say being in a hospital, racism, being the victim of racism. They don't want to think about those things, or they don't want to put themselves in the place of those people who are experiencing those things. That makes them feel nervous. They go to these stories of heroism, you know, and they, they, there's this a little bit of a tendency to say, oh, come on, buck up. You could deal with it. Why? You know, I know this story about this guy who did something great. And I love the stories and I think they're important. And we can learn a lot, just as Charles was saying, we can learn a lot about those people who do heroic things when they're in, under pressure. But I'm, I'm curious about that, the way stories of heroism move us away from empathizing with, you know, things in the moment. One, one last thing, just to, I'll try to keep it brief, but Ralph's comment about the hospital at the very outset about how people are stressed during the hospital. A lot of folks who've not been in a hospital don't know what that's like, and it is real. And you could just go in for a minor thing. It doesn't have to be an amputation. And yes, an amputation is highly stressful, but a lot of folks, the moment they're in the hospital, they are stressed to the gills. It could be for the removal of a cyst, you know, or something like that. And, but a lot of folks don't experience that unless they've had it, unless they know someone has gone through it or they've gone through it themselves. I think the same thing applies to racism. I mean, being a victim of racism, I think people don't really put themselves in the, in the position to empathize with those folks. They don't get how much yeah, not only does it suck, it's terrible, but it's stressful and it could hurt your health. And I think that's why the CDC's uh, uh, new uh, policy on that is so important. So I was interested in that sort of heroism and empathy sort of angle of things. Well, the best recent case, since you mentioned it, Jerry, is this young woman, a teenager, who was witnessing the death of Floyd she will suffer the lot. Now that's vicarious suffering. So she was stressed because of what she didn't do. And that will live with her for a long time. I was mostly empathic, of course, with Mr. Floyd, but with that teenager who witnessed it and made the whole case work, she will suffer for a lot. I worry about that teenage kid who took the movie. And so vicarious suffering is another dimension of stress. So, the, and I had a patient who was having an amputation and the spouse was more upset than the patient. So vicarious suffering is another dimension of our humanity. 
and is a tremendous problem with these racial issues that we see. And a lot of people- And also witnessing murder. So not just the guilt, but also witnessing murder is in in and of itself. uh, Yeah, just wanted to make sure that. So that that will live with that child for a long time. I was mostly concerned, as much concerned about the whole situation, but that child will live with that memory. And these are some of the other dimensions. So I, I just want to say something briefly about the question. So it was the public health threat. So that's what the CDC said is racism being one of the most um, salient public health threats. But to the idea of heroism and condition or, or context and, and, and does that deflect from some, some aspects. And, and what came to mind firstly with, with that idea is, is also who we cite in, heroist, in, in, in a heroism way and who we reference as engaging in a, her- in, in a heroic act. And I think that also changes and creates a different empathic uh, spectrum of the way that we think of heroes. And so I think that it's a great point of, of the examples we gave, but, but there's also examples of heroism as it relates to specific contexts that um, Ralph was just talking about. And, and those examples of thinking about different contexts of heroism based on what the stressors are, the situations, the social determinants are, I think is critical, but I think there's been an over-index or can be an over-indexing that we see through a lot of research around a singular representation of what heroic acts look like, who they're done by, and, and how we then align to that in our concept of what the heroic is and means. And I think that, so, so I think that it's a good question about does that matter the, the heroic versus the empathic, but I think it also really deeply matters who we tee up and what types of examples and stories we are giving about the heroic as well. And so, you know, with that, like I think of the different pressures and stressors that someone like Stacey Abrams has in death threats, you know, that endured in being a public figure. And, and her reaction to me was a heroic pivot from a loss of an election to really sustained effort around a singular goal. And, and it was a Herculean lift that then had a great outcome. But I saw that as an example of a heroic move based on the social press or history, structural dimensions and barriers and, and challenges, as well as active threats of violence that she endured given her role and what she's been able to do with it and translate into. So, so I think we, we need to be conscientious around, around those because that actually helps to me in, in creating the variation of how we define and who we think of as heroic also changes our empathic ability to connect to different people, folks, and stories in understanding what different pressures look like, the context of different social stressors, what people have had to overcome in a particular way that we can identify with as well as deem heroic. So I think that's just, I wanna put that subjectivity out there to how we even define heroism. Well, I'll tell another story, <laughs> an opening uh, uh, about attitudes about stress. We did a study on the Sherpas who carry these loads up the mountains. And we did some testing because we were stunned, at least I was stunned, to see what they could do in the cold and, and bearing these loads. And we, we had a little uh, testing machine, 
not like a written test, but this was a test of heat and cold sensitivity, which uh, my colleague brought actually to the Himalayas to test the Sherpas. And their tolerance for pain was extraordinary, uh, both with heat and cold. And we asked them, you know, well, do you feel anything? Well, that's life. There was an acceptance of the stress and interpretation of the stress that you were saying socially or a test exam. So the, as uh, Charlie was mentioning before, the social context becomes extremely important. And these, that's life. They said, you know, pain and their stoicism was remarkable. So some people get in it reminds me, I was going to ask Ben what he thinks about this. I mean, I, it's been my observation that sort of test taking and the college prep, that whole, you know, that whole domain has progressed in a way where I think a lot of students, don't they sort of expect to be stressed? They go into these situations thinking this well, is going to be a stressful situation. Yeah, and it, uh, absolutely. But um, I think it, it, uh, the history of it goes to things that we're talking about regarding um, acts of heroism and models. And, um, and it just makes me think about the competitive nature of our culture, how deeply competitive everything is and how one has to rise to the top and how there is a top and how you have to, and um, it just, uh, so it starts at a very early age. I mean, I had a kid once who, um, was going to middle school, had to be interviewed for the middle school and had to pass a math test. And she, she wouldn't speak. And, and <laughs> so they, they brought, the parents brought the kid to me uh, and uh, she wouldn't speak and she couldn't, she wouldn't do math. And, you know, through, through just having her do some drawings and releasing all the pressure around, um, around this. She had an older brother, by the way, who was trying to get into an Eastern prep school and his father, the way he trained him for the interview was to stand behind doorways. And when the kid passed through the doorway, the father would jump out and ask him a question. So um, the poor, so this little girl, I just gave her some crayons and she would like to draw and she would draw. And then that led into telling me stories about this dinosaur family and the brother and the mother and the father. And then it all led to her being, just telling me that she was afraid to ask a question. You know, she was afraid to say she didn't understand something. So, you know, the pressure builds up so early on. This is a kid in what, the fifth grade. She was afraid she couldn't speak up and say, I don't understand. And I had to coach the teacher, the parents, everybody involved with this kid to encourage her just to say, I don't understand. So I'm, I'm opening up your question, Jerry, because it's uh, by the time they get to high school and the competitive nature of getting into college and all of those things. And then all this touches all the issues we're talking about, social issues, you know, um, uh, we live in a neighborhood in Oakland that's uh, racially quite mixed. And um, I had an experience in my, my own work to have interns in summer when Obama was president. And two, I had two African-American kids, teenagers, and they were great. And they came and they're like, I want to have a hair salon and I want to do this and I want to do that. And um, they weren't interested in the work that I was doing related to testing. They just wanted to make money. And when we got into the work, I said, well, we're gonna, I'm going to train you in this stuff. There, they started to really light up. In other words, we got we went deeper into who they are and what they're interested in, and in getting away from all this competition. So, um, you know, by the time people get to high school, one of the things that they say is when they're having a problem with tests is they say, "I'm not a good test taker." 
that's a very unfortunate label to pin on yourself, right? Because life is filled with tests daily, daily. I'm not a good test taker. And um, I think that I just want to come back to something I said earlier as related to what we're all talking about, which is, is that I think how we address training students, I'll use that, or educating students into um, life is so much more important than a lot of the subject stuff that we lay on them, which they're bored to tears with and don't get engaged with. And then they just end up feeling stressed because there's no real connection that they have. So yeah, it is a big problem. Um, and uh, I, I've just seen kids drop off the map, particularly in our neighborhood. You know, they, they drop out of high school, they just lose it, they're not interested. And, and uh, you know, I think we're losing, um, I think we're losing a significant uh, proportion of national treasure in all these kids. Nobody knows what they could really turn into. You know, what's inside of them that really wants to be cultivated, wants to grow just because they didn't have the same conditions I had, that's no reason that they shouldn't be able to flourish. But the stress of performing, the stress of being on top, the stress of in some way being a hero is, is considerable. I just wanna say something else about that because it has another connotation. The sports stars can be very wonderful models for kids. You know, NBA stars and, and football stars and in both, both uh, genders. Um, because these are people who have really worked to achieve something and they can see that if they have a dream and they really work for it, they can achieve it. So that way handling the stress of having to perform is a different story because you're building something from the inside. I think that's really what I'm trying to get to here. To build from the inside, the sense of resilience, the sense of possibility. Charlie was bringing up about the Apollo astronauts. Those guys are trained to stay very present into every single moment that they have to deal with. Boom, boom, boom. They are not flipping to the past. They're not going into the future. They are present. And that's really the key, I think, in all of this. Because yeah, well, that's the, but let me just finish. That's the sure. great equalizer for all of us is that we're all yeah. in the present. And, and as related to what Allison's been talking about, we're all in this together. So let, let's get it, you know. I mean, uh, last point about this. Um, we, spend, we do spend a lot of time in India. In fact, we're going to be moving there in about a year. And one of the people that I study with there uh, has, puts it very simply. He says, you're, you're either living in an I world or a we world. Well, we're all living in a we world. And the people who think we're living in an I world are really um, stressing the rest of us out. We just had a president for four years as a perfect example of that, so. Yeah. And would you think, and, and this goes back also to what Allison said and what everyone has been saying, that the girl who took the photo, the video, Ralph, she was so present in the moment and she had the presence to do what needed to be done and she is heroic will that help her balance out the feeling of trauma of what she saw so ben you you seem well i i, I uh, allison's shaking her head vigorously and i'd like to hear what what she has to say about this but she i i don't no, I mean, I know her from the media, but she should be absolutely um, lauded, if that's the right word, for, for her act, what she did, that she was present, that she stood there, that she took it in. 
uh, and what whatever help she's getting, I mean, it makes me want to now find out what kind of help has been offered to her to deal with the trauma. Because as Allison said, she watched a death in the making. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think your, your point is great, Beverly, that that, that should be, that should be um, highlighted in some way. And will Allison, that what, help her in terms of so, somewhat giving her another side of her own experience? Oh, totally, yeah, I think so. I think that she, you know, uh, a, a rewarding presence um, uh, as, a, as a way of living, as a way of contributing, as a way of being connected, Sure, I would think that could that could help her considerably. Allison, I would I was wondering what you were thinking about this. Well, well yes, I would think she would be uh, getting a lot of social and emotional support. The fact that she felt guilty fear that she didn't do more, but she, she was helpless to do more. And that's one of the struggles of many women who are not assertive. But fortunately, we have uh, Merkel and other women who have outspoken in a heroic way. So I didn't mean to be too uh, cavalier about ignoring the courage of uh, women, including Rosa Parks or whatever. So there, I think there are enough heroes to go around, not to intimidate people, but to set examples of possibility when they're feeling more vulnerable and whether uh, there was a person who had a special foundation to present heroic acts to high school uh, students and went around talking to give the models of heroic women and men. There's a special foundation that did this, went around to high schools talking about uh, heroes of the past of, of both genders. And I think that's the thing potentially will help people uh, develop courage and resilience and, and imagination. That's I was going to say the one thing I was going to quickly say in response to Ben when he mentioned the NASA pilots is that, you know, what is important is I think this may also apply to in some instances to the military, but I know it applies to NASA people. They put a value on that presence of mind. That's part of their culture. This young woman who did have a, a presence of mind, she was she was a victim of it in a sense because she stumbled upon this crime that was going on, right? So with, in her case, we have to, ret and I am in favor of this, retrospectively saying, look, what a hero you were. And that may ameliorate some of the stress she feels afterwards, some of the symptomatology she may be exposed to. If we say, wow, you were a hero, it doesn't guarantee she won't. I mean, uh, Ralph, you mentioned Sully, who, you know, was part of the, was a pilot and he knows he's supposed to have presence of mind and he did incredibly well. And yet he still has some PTSD symptoms. So I think having a culture that values that presence of mind really is helpful and also retrospectively giving awards and saying, wow, that was amazing. That also helps, but it doesn't completely prevent, let's well, say a stress response. Uh, if if no. it did, we wouldn't really have so much PTSD in some of the soldiers and people who are heroes at war. But uh, one thing that uh, Charles said and, and has been in discussion, I just wanna ask something about, he said that, um, stress uh, has to do with the brain. What I wanted to ask, and I could ask this question in many ways, the simplest way is to say, what's the connection between stress and awareness of stress? Why is it there are stresses that we can go 
uh, experience but not be aware of. Sometimes you see patients where uh, you, you see that what they are going through is stressful. You ask them and they say, oh, no, I don't find it stressful. And then it takes work to get them to understand that yeah. it's stressful. Ed, I, th I think one aspect of that is that some people under high stress are prone to dissociation. And when they mm. dissociate, they mm. disconnect mentally, emotionally, and physically from the experience, and they don't register it in the normal way in consciousness. So it takes a lot of work to help them to break through the dissociation, connect with the experience, engage with it emotionally, and deal with the memory traces which are actually there. So dissociation is a very important thing. We found if you had to predict one measure, one thing after severely extreme stressful life experience that predicts whether someone will go on to develop a pathological stress reaction, it's peritraumatic dissociation. They disconnect, they depersonalize, they derealize, they take distance from it. They tell you, oh, I ran out of the World Trade Center and my best friend was just killed and I thought I was going to die, but I'm not too upset, doctor, because I thought I was in a movie. It didn't feel real to me. It took some time to help that person connect. So it, it, dissociation is very important. I, I, I uh, wanted to also get back to, to something uh, that Allison uh, was saying uh, about heroes. And I, I love your example of Stacey Abrams. She's really heroic in very much the same way that the, the male heroes were talking about heroic. We could take Michelle Obama. We could take other incredible figures that are heroic. Uh, one of the difficult things, if we're, going to be, if we're going to have honest and difficult conversations about this though, we have to ask the question, what do these heroic figures have in common? And what op opportunities do some other people not have? One thing they have in common, we found in our research, is high education and high academic achievement. Stacey Abrams has multiple degrees, including a law degree from Yale. Um, Michelle Obama has a law degree, I think, from Harvard. Uh, the astronauts and cosmonauts are, and Navy SEALs are selected because they have master's and doctoral degrees in aeronautical engineering. And by and large, they've come from relatively stable family backgrounds with educated parents, affectionate, stable attachment figures in, in early childhood, and enormous encouragement to become high achievers, and they've learned to control their emotions in that context. And so one aspect of structural racism that must be profoundly addressed is creating equal opportunity for everyone to have those kinds of learning experiences because they don't just buy you a ticket onto Wall Street or a top law firm or to be a professor at Yale. They buy you the capacity to manage extreme emotion and be able to think clearly. That's where we're talking about conditions. What are the conditions that allow for it? To Gerald's point, it's not, nothing's a guarantee, but there are conditions that have been substantiated as far as being able to evoke different types of emotional capacity, reactions to stress, availability for thriving, to move from a surviving framework into one of flourishing and thriving. And we have very clear and specific conditions that do allow for that, which we can 
you know, effect on, on much more of a, a societal sort of national policy. Mand it creates a mandate for that, knowing those conditions. And then it becomes about sort of individualized contextual elements, but there are some really clear conditions that either evoke a flourishing <laughs> dimension for all folks in society around equity or deprive that. And that's one of the consequences when Ben was talking about the consequences too of this level of inequity. It, it does not allow for not just individual thriving, but also the value of, of thriving for large swaths of the society in how that builds different communities, but also innovation, also transforming kind of nation states. It, 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 we, we all suffer you know, from an individual all the way to a global level from not creating conditions for flourishing. So uh, I'm, I'm gonna pick up on something you just said, Alison, and something um, Charlie brought up about uh, dissociation. It's a story of, for, for about 15, 15 years, I um, traveled the country as a speaker for the American Dental Association. Dentists were known at one time to have the highest suicide rate of healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of reasons why, and they're really good reasons. Um, uh, I sat on a committee called the Wellbeing Committee, which was a kind of net safety net for dentists who were caught um, in the midst of their addiction, either to drugs or alcohol or whatever. Um, and, but it was to save their license. So they had to come into treatment. This guy was sent to me after he had had eight weeks at Betty Ford, which was preceded by a family intervention, which was preceded by years and years of drinking. And when he came, he sat down in my office and he looked at me and he says, I don't know why I'm here. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, you know, I started to, and then he just had no, he didn't have a clue. And I asked him to tell me the story. He, he admitted he drank. I asked him to tell me the story of how the drinking started. Well, you know, I got out of dental school, $250,000 debt, two kids right away, building his own house, building a bar in the basement of his house. He liked to drink a little bit and it went on and on and on. And, you know, and then I said, finally, I said to him, well, look, you know, we know there's an association, very close association between stress and addiction. And he stopped me cold and he said, I wasn't stressed. I said, well, what do you call it? He said, I just needed to relax. So how's that for dissociation, Charlie? Yeah. <laughs> so so um, I don't know. There was another point, Alison, that you were making. It'll come back to me. But um, I, well, yeah, I just think about this. Oh, yeah, I know what it is. I think we're, we're, so many of us get dissociated when it's not happening to us. Personally, individually, yeah. it's not hurting us. After 9-11, talk radio went on and on. I was listening in one show, a guy got on from somewhere, in, I think in the Midwest, and he said, I don't know what the big deal is about this you know, world trip. And it occurred to me, what he's really saying is, a plane didn't fly into my house. What's the big deal? Yeah. And I think that's, unfortunately, that goes back to the I world and the we world, that we don't think about ourselves as members of, a huge collective that has so many differences and um, ways that we can learn from each other and give to each other and and um, challenge each other. It's it's just fighting, 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 fighting. And so, um, yeah. I, I want to go back to uh, Ralph's introductory comments again because he made this important distinction between a stressor, or maybe it was Charlie who said this. I'm sorry. There being a stressor and stress, and um, in some ways, you know. A stressor becomes stress when we we apply a certain meaning to the stressor. Not always, because you were just describing cases where it's unconscious. 
But the point I wanted to make is that if one of the meetings is a story that unfolds and there's a heroic act that occurred or another version where the person's a passive victim and is traumatized by it, those stories all have meaning. There are narratives and they have a meaning to them. Dissociation is almost a case where it has no meaning. You know, the event had no meaning, right? And it's interesting that uh, how much dissociation comes into play when people do not have access to narratives that make sense of that any kind of narrative. It could be something about their own personal life and what they're going through with their families and their loved ones, or it could be at a societal level. If there's no narrative for it or one that appeals to them, they might not have a narrative and they may dissociate. Yeah, I think the operative phrase there, uh, Jerry, is one that appeals to them. <laughs> Because um, you know, I don't like that story. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna connect with it. Um, I'm wondering about the stresses we choose rather than the stresses that we're chosen for, and how do we, as individuals, get to know enough about what our own stress capacities are? I mean, one can have a a pretty stressful life and choose to do many things. And then you choose one too many and then you can't really function. So how do we get to know what that is? Do we have to keep a little stress computer, stress counter? Well, I'll tell you a, a story, Beverly, uh, since I've taken care of a pair of twin boys and twin girls and these boys look alike. And every time I see them, I remember now, which twin am I seeing today? And one of them suffered a loss of a, of a girlfriend, but it was an important first relationship. And with a little talk with him, modest use of antidepressants, he did very well. And the identical twin brother, two or three years later, he comes in with the same story, a similar story that it lost a girlfriend, it was in college, it was a couple of years later. And I said, well, they're twins, they're the same. They've had the same parenting, they happen to play music together, and they were uh, known as uh, musical twins, they're called the Mirror Images was the name of their, their electronic guitar. So they were that close. The second twin responded to nothing. I did the same thing. I tried to have anything. I finally had to hospitalize him and give him some EST because he could not get over the loss now. So in terms of learning or genetics, we're all different. So a sibling who has, or maybe you have, a, you, someone has a sibling who's been through a stress. So there's vicarious learning, wrong. Emotional learning is a highly idiosyncratic response. And I learned that many times is that each person responded to stress. The stress was common, but their reactions couldn't be more different, even though they were identical twins. So every human being is an experiment in genetics. You got 60% from your mother and 40% from your father. That's the current. But the mix of genes gives everybody different skills, talents, or perhaps stress responses, which you don't know. But I was struck by that early on in my career. So it's hard to make, we know something about hormones and the differences in hormones, we can measure them, but there's an interior sense that's very hard to discern and say, okay, we taught you how to deal with stress. And when these soldiers at West Point are all taught how to shoot a gun, 
yet Elijah never, never, never fire a gun. So it's it's a mystery, I would say, uh, reveling about. I've, I've had some people who are in the performing arts, some patients in the performing arts, and one of the uh, anticipations that helps them to get through in practice as they need to practice is they imagine the applause of the audience. Mm -hmm. But then if the audience doesn't applaud to the same volume of what was in their imagination, there's a kind of collapse. It's almost like anticipatory mirror neuron phenomena. Right. So I wondered, Ben, if you, you know, you, you focusing on performing artists and some of your practice, if you have had examples of something like that, where the person's performance is as they imagined, but the response is not. Yeah, so um, I have, and um, I just work hard to get them into the performance, not, not into the imagined response, you know, like actually, there's a lot with opera singers. So over the years, I've worked a lot with opera singers and, you know, you're singing in front of 5,000 people with 120 piece orchestra and you know when people are going to applaud or when they're quiet. Or, but um, the key in all that is what, what I do is I just get them really into what they're singing, into the music, into the, um, into the, the, the shape and the emotion so that they're actually in that experience. They're not doing that experience for the uh, results. So the key, the key teaching in the whole Bhagavad Gita is chapter two, Shloka 47, don't be attached to the fruits of your action and you have to act. So, I mean, to me, that's about presence. It's about you, you be in the present. We don't know how people are gonna react. We don't know what other people are thinking, but we know that we can really put ourselves fully into what we're doing. And the more fully we can, we can be engaged in what we're doing, and certainly in the performing arts, the way that works is that the more you're in it, the more the audience is in it. This is just a phenomenon. I, mean, I discovered this early on when I kept falling asleep by the second act you know, of any opera that I went to. Why? Because the singers were fabulous, but they weren't relating to anything that they were really singing or to each other. And when we get them to do that, it's actually electric. And that's when we feel it. So, you know, that goes into this other thing we're talking about, about the group response and the individual response and how, you know, theater is a community event. Everything is on some level in that way. So, um, yeah, I, 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 it's, imagining the response is, um, it's like with athletes, same thing, you know, get them off the gold medal, get them onto what is the technique where they may be having a little bit of, problem that they have to really work through. And then when you work, then they play their best. So, um, can we go to the audio, to question and answer? Can I just ask sure. Dr. Marmar one question? Do, do you see that when you're dealing with the history of some of your patients, that they anticipated positive response from their parents that they didn't get ever, and that that creates a kind of chronic stress? Uh, it's, it's a great question, Beverly. I think yeah. that kind of experience, uh, either they didn't get the response that they expected or they got a, an unempathic response, uh, really can have lifelong effects on their stress resilience. 
and their ability to flexibly cope with stresses when they're older, especially <coughs> major stresses and losses. So it's, it's, very, it's very important. I think that a person's ability to manage stress is, as, uh, as Ralph mentioned, partly genetic, and it's partly based in secure, early empathic attachments. And the, the combination of those who, in all of the people that I have uh, had the privilege of working with, the men and women who've been unusually stress resilient, they've been blessed with three things. A family history, which is relatively free from psychiatric problems, uh, a uh, very close, empathic, and loving early attachment figures, and high education. And the opposite of those three things leaves you with an Achilles heel. I just also, before we go to the question and answer uh, period, I want to respond to sort of as a public service announcement. Beverly asked the question about how do we know, because some people like to take on stressful roles. How do we know when we're about to burn out? I think that's an important question to try to respond to. And uh, you know, from my point of view, and I'd be happy to hear what other panelists here think, but I would say that uh, one of them was part of the story I think Ben told, which is watching your consumption of alcohol and other substances. Now some of the number of legal substances is increasing. So, and illegal ones have always been there. So we have to keep an eye on the uh, quantity and the frequency of use. Uh, sleep quality, of course, is very important. Um, I always ask patients how they're sleeping every session, almost the second thing I ask them. And uh, just generally, if they're feeling irritable, uh, et cetera, those sorts of things, of course, are important markers. And unfortunately, a lot of people look away from them, even though they're occurring. But that would be the, for me, how to avoid turning a, a hard job into one that causes burnout. I don't know if other people have other ideas about that. So, so I'll just say, and this is something that I, that I wanted to read because I think it, it's something that I go back to as far as helping me with the, <laughs> the endless things that I could keep doing and, and drive myself into, um, you know, performative acts of, of uh, job demands as well as personal demands. So to Beverly's point. Um, and so I, I wanted to read from Audre Lorde, the activist and um, feminist from her 1988 essay, A Burst of Light, which is often quoted, but she was facing terminal illness at this time. And she kind of coined the frame and term around self-care, which has now been obviously turned into a wellness meme. But prior, she was, she was conceptualizing this concept of self-care as caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. I had to examine in my dreams as well as in my immune function tests, the devastating effects of overextension. And that has forced me to consciously jettison the myth of omnipotence of believing or loosely asserting that I can do anything along with any dangerous illusion of immortality. Neither of these unscrutinized defenses is a solid base for either political activism or personal struggle. But in their place, another kind of power is growing, tempered and enduring, grounded within the realities of what I am in fact doing, an open-eyed assessment and appreciation of what I can do and accomplish using who I am 
and who I most wish myself to be. And so I, I go back to that when I want to do 50 million and one things uh, to get a little bit grounded and engage in self-care as an act of um, resistance. So that's a recommendation from my end. Okay. Well, I think with that, maybe we can open up the floor to some of the questions and we have from our audience. Alex, yeah. you want to uh, yeah, start I'll, us off? I'll go ahead. So this is from YouTube under the name Google user. So I don't know what their real name is, but Google user, thank you. Um, so they wrote, it seems to me that stress is a contemporary term for anxiety or anguish, which is a widely used term in psychoanalytic literature. Am I correct on that? If that is so, then I believe Freud made it very clear that anguish is independent of external reality, which accepting is itself quite anguishing. Anguish seems to be a consequence of the position the subject takes in face of his or her own desire, regardless of external reality. So what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I would uh, say one brief comment, and that is that life is always accompanied by losses. We say you should be a good loser, but that doesn't exist. Nobody's a good loser. Nobody likes to lose, whether you're uh, losing your health, you're losing your friend, you're losing money. And, and the question is, uh, think in terms of, lack of a better word, acceptance, that in life, everybody loses. And that people, as Beverly was mentioned, who, who've had a life of uh, roses all along and suddenly some catastrophe hits and they're not prepared. So sometimes, a loss early on that you master can give you a kind of immunity against future losses. And if there's a sense of acceptance that not everybody wins the scholarship, uh, the Nobel Prize, whatever, and that you win in life if you have loyalty, you have friends, and that's more important in terms of helping you deal with losses to have a circle of friends who help you get through the losses. So anguish, if you want to call it anguish, is response, I would say, a loss. And, and we all lose at some point. OK, so I'll go on to the next one. Um, so this was from Dave O, also from YouTube. And they asked, uh, what about the angle of faith with regards to stress? In particular, how does that affect an individual's perspective on the things in life that happen? So a wonderful question. It's about faith, right? If I heard you correctly. So uh, we have studied the role of faith and religious belief in resilience and vulnerability to traumatic stress. And what, what we found, which may be not, not unexpected, is that it can be a double-edged sword. For some people, their deep faith and their sense of acceptance and the sense that loss or injury or setbacks are God's will and it's part of a deeper scheme that we don't fully understand can be very protective. We've also found some people who feel that bad things should not or could not happen to good people so that if misfortune strikes them, um, that they must have had been um, 
imperfect in their faith and their religious practice. And they suffer tremendous anguish and guilt, which is unrealistic because of that. So religion can be a source of great solace. Unfortunately, can be for some people a source of great pain in the face of stress. Right. The, the other thing I would say, add to what Charlie said, is that we do associate faith with religion, but faith um, uh, without that association can be faith in that what's happening is happening for the purpose of me and us to grow to a better place. And that, um, that every, we, all of our experiences are contributing, potentially attributing to it. Uh, contributing to our growth. If we have faith in that, we can look at our experience as educative, as a, an opportunity for um, opening more, for growing more, for being more connected to each other. Um, so it's, uh, it's not, I, I'm, I'm not crazy about the, the phrase, you know, the universe is telling me, I don't know what that means, but I am um, quite, uh, believing from experience, both personally and clinically, that that faith that what I, what's coming is something that I need to pay attention to, that I can grow from. And when I do that, you know, my making my, my bit to make the world a better place. I will say the importance too with that in faith communities and what faith communities can do if, if you don't suffer, let's say, aspects of exclusion based on any identity, but faith communities can really enrich a sense of solidarity, a sense of social support, which is critical to um, enduring stress and stressors. So as far as that relates, it's, it's really quite important. It also depends what you have faith in. If it's in a false prophet or a cult leader, or someone who you know promises you that if you identify with them, you're going to be first in the world, then that's a quite dangerous faith. And I think we've we've suffered that tremendously, personally and societally. Okay, I can go on to the next one. Okay, um, this is from Elizabeth Manis. Thank you, Elizabeth. She wrote. Is there anything for Ben Bernstein to say about ways that we worlders can shield themselves from the actions of and are possibly the influence of I worlders? Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for that question. I, we, I, I'm sure we all have come through four years of that um, <laughs> with the last administration. Um, you know, the way I see it is, is, is that uh, the I Ching, Chinese Book of Changes, I think it's, I don't remember what hexagram it is, but they say the best way to combat evil, and I'm gonna use evil in a large sense of the word, the best way to combat evil is to make energetic progress in the good. So, you know, fighting that um, doesn't uh, do produce much except more resistance, more tension, but actually putting one's energies into what is uh, contributing to others, what is fulfilling of one's purpose in life, that's the way to do it. I mean, that's the way to, to, to shield yourself. And as, as Allison just said with faith communities and finding the community of people that um, are like-minded and that are self-supportive who want to do that. So um, it's a really good question and it's something that we have to, uh, but we have to deal with 
uh, a lot, but trying to convince the other person, it doesn't sort of doesn't go too far. Great. Okay, next question. All right, so next one, I just wanna make sure, okay. So next one is from an anonymous viewer uh, from the Zoom audience. And they wrote, related to the Audrey Lord quote, do we sometimes feel an ethical or religious imperative to react to certain stressful events that not doing so makes us a selfish or bad person? Can you read the last part again? Yes. Um, so uh, do we sometimes feel an ethical or religious imperative to react to certain stressful events that not doing so makes us a selfish or bad person? Anyone? I mean, um, so much. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I hear in the question that that's the juxtaposition of, of not reacting and then folding into bad person. So I, I hear a, a kind of response to um, the, what would I say? The um, kind of personalistic um, good, bad dynamic in the reaction to a specific event or not. And I, I actually wouldn't put those two things in contrast and that, that's not my impression from the quote. I think that, you know, we all have uh, the position, the need, the desire and the um, ethical mandate, depending on where we sit in our perspective to respond to certain instances that move and affect and impact us. And I think that that's really important to to listen to. And I don't, I don't think, I, I wouldn't juxtapose it into a, a kind of good person, bad person um, dichotomy, because I think that that creates or uh, establishes, um, you're either, the answer is yes or no, and, and things are, I think, much more complex and nuanced from that. So, so I would just encourage the decoupling of reaction to an event and, and bad person versus curiosity around what moves me, what do I have a reaction to, what is my impact in the world, what do I want to accomplish, and, and using that as far as who I wish myself to become, because when we put the dynamic of, of kind of good person, bad person, it can shut down exploration, curiosity, reflection, and engagement, and so that would be my concern with that splitting or that comparison, that conflation of reacting versus good person, bad person. And so then you're in a, in, in that vacillation, then either it's either yes or no versus what are some of the creative and reflective solutions, reasons, and reactions to the event at hand. So that's kind of my, my response to the, to that question. No, that's, that's interesting. I, I would just add, I would agree with you, Allison. Uh, it shouldn't be set up as morally good and bad. The deeper question, though, may be, given that uh, there is an enormous amount of suffering in the world, there is an enormous amount of injustice in the world, and we want to contribute 
uh, and and given that the the we world is the world we want, not the I world, but I would also be careful about splitting the me, the we, and the I world too much, man, because in order to be able to contribute to others and care for others and have the energy and resources and love and interest and thought to be able to contribute, it does require a lot of self-care and self-management, which is about the I world. And, you know, there's that old saying, you know, put on your own oxygen mask before assisting others. And if you don't do that, you may not be able to function very effectively. So I think it's important not to set up self-care and self healthy self-gratification as being bad or selfish at a time when there is a moral imperative to help each other. Uh, it just, it's, a, it's something to think about. I think, I think also we, we spoke a little bit earlier about uh, the potential for, let's say, post-traumatic stress symptoms deriving from inaction. You know, I should have done this and I didn't, and then feeling guilty about it. And if you put that together with the, Charlie's comment earlier about religious, uh, the, the two-edged sword that religion can, can provide, if, if a person, uh, let's say, is inactive and they regret it later and they have some remorse over it, let's say there's nothing wrong with that. To call yourself a bad person typically in that context means you're kind of beating yourself up about it. And that could lead to symptoms and not to any kind of resolution or growth, personal growth. So yes, you could think I should have done more than I did. That may be fully appropriate, but I think it's important not to think of yourself as a bad person in this sort of overly moralistic sense that could be corrosive. It's not helpful to further growth. I agree, Jerry. And often in my care for trauma survivors uh, who feel very deeply that they failed to act in some way to prevent harm or catastrophe to others, whether it's their crewmates or it's their family or their community or someone else. Often that does derive from certain omnipotent ideas and fantasies that we have the ability to foretell what's gonna happen and prevent bad things when we often don't. So people carry around in them enormous sense of guilty responsibility for things that realistically they could not have known and could not have prevented. I, I would add to that, having seen a number of um, concentration camp survivors and why do they survive? Should they have done something more? And one of the things occasionally I say, not too often, uh, that life is lived forward. Because a quote, uh, I think it's from Nietzsche, and, but we learn about life backward. And the question is whether you can develop a forgettery as long as, as important as memory. So you move on to the next issue. And if, you're going to, if the next thing happens, what would you do the next time? That you can't change the past, but you can change the future. And I think that's a question for some reflection about your indecision as to whether to act or not. Okay, yes, but you gotta live forward. And what do you wanna do the next time? Okay. Um, Another so, question? Yeah, if we have two more, is that okay? It's good. Okay. All right. So Linda Thorson on YouTube wrote, so do any of you associate physical exercise with stress relief in a highly effective way? 
The answer is absolutely yes. That one of the best stress management tools we have is moderate daily aerobic exercise. Yeah, we will exercise our necks when that question came through, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, yeah. I totally, totally agree. I know when I haven't done it and moderate daily, moderate and daily are the key words there. I think I, I know when I haven't done it and I feel it's, it's very, it's very important. It, uh, it's, it's very powerful and may be equally powerful to meditation, medication or other approaches. So yes, the, the, uh, it's rest and exercise are hugely important in stress management. I my survival of the aspects of the pandemic to my Peloton. I mean, that's might be too much information, <laughs> but it really helped me deeply. It's I think I, having to take a dip in cold water every morning. Oh, I don't know. I started to do that with, I, somebody oh. told me like turn on the cold shower at the end and I thought, oh, forget that. But I started to do it. And you know what? I love it. It's actually, I look forward to it. It wakes me up in a really good way. There's an author named Wim Hof. I've never read anything by him, but apparently that's what he, uh, he recommends. I just wanted to look back to something Charlie said, though, about the eye and the week, because I thought it was really apt. And I think it's connected to this question, too, that we do have to take care of ourselves in order to really make a full contribution. You know, I traveled around the country talking to large audiences of healthcare professionals. And I would look out in the audience and so many of those people who are, I'm sure, dedicated professionals look so unhealthy. Yeah. And I thought to myself, my goodness, you know, you, people are coming to you for what you can give them, but it's really you're giving it to them from you. And the more you can be healthy, the more you become what they want, and then you can really help them. So I, I think it's a great point that you made, Charlie. I appreciate it. Yeah. I remember, remember the old story, huh? And in, uh, how can you tell the shoemaker in the village, the person with holes in their shoes? No time to care for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. To go back to the other question about exercise, I think a study, I think it was done at Sloan Kettering, uh, where they would say that a sedentary lifestyle is equal to a pack and a half of cigarettes a day. We are two-legged creatures, and you say you use it or you lose it. So the exercise is essential. I think there's a minimal amount that every human being must do every day. Otherwise, you're going to get into all kinds of healthcare problems. So the exercise question, you learn that in school. They have gym regularly during high school and elementary school. And there's a reason for that, because you have to learn to exercise some every day. It doesn't have to be seven days a week, but it certainly should be four to five. Well, the other thing, too, is that those of us who make our living sitting in a chair or a desk most of the day, we need to get up and move around, you know. I mean, uh, when we're on the screen all day, um, first of all, it's putting a tremendous tax on our sympathetic nervous system because we're only using our foveal vision, which is directly hardwired to the sympathetic nervous system. We've got to get up and move occasionally in between. I'm saying this so I hear it myself. All right, after this, get up and stretch. Okay, we have one last question, Alex. Yeah, last one, then we could all do jumping jacks uh, after if we want. Uh, but uh, this is from Carla Johnson. Thank you, Carla. She wrote, are there any initiatives to move from our competitive culture to a cooperative one as one solution to chronic system, sorry, to chronic systemic stress? Uh, 
That's a great, that's a great question. Uh, uh, one, one thing I've learned as uh, chair of a large department of psychiatry and uh, which in an environment which is very competitive in which our, my faculty need to be able to perform highly, we've tried something a little different, which is a blend of the two. Rather than move from a competitive to a cooperative culture, we said, how do we need to cooperate together to support each other to be maximally competitive? How do we form the right teams with the right chemistry, with the right mix of skills, so everyone can help each other to be successful, so we can enjoy the congeniality and support of that, but at the same time, we can perform like hell. So that, that was the kind of compromise we struck between competition and cooperation. I would echo uh, what, what you're saying, Charlie, and I think one of the side effects but benefits of the play is that it forces us to cooperate now the cooperation in the scientific community i would say is unparalleled they change the rules about practicing in one state doctors can move their ridiculous rules about doctors and nurses but more important even in the basic science fields and drug companies have cooperated i was on a international phone call between uh, berlin london paris new york california and all of a sudden, there was a guy from Poland. The guy was brilliant, but we would never heard of this guy if there wasn't the Zoom and the cooperation. And I think the plague, whether they're banging the thin pots in Italy to cooperate and say, we want to take care of our doctors and nurses. I think side effects of the plague, not that we have to lose millions of lives to learn this, but I think one of the benefits of the plague, certainly in the medical field and the nursing field, and uh, scientific research is people learn to cooperate. And in fact, uh, most of the scientific papers these days are made by teams of people. It's not one man discovering something in the garage. And all scientific ventures and all business ventures require teamwork. And what Charlie is saying about the team at NYU, we certainly make a, a do that. In fact, one of my jokes is in Texas where they're so rich in medical research, they have separate buildings for everything. And in <laughs> Columbia, we're in a narrow aisle. In fact, Columbia was known. The president, Lee Bonger, took over. He said, this is one of the densest research universities in the country. We're all crowded on the upper end of Manhattan. So you're going to be good neighbors. You have to cooperate with your neighbors. And how big the neighborhood is depends on your view. Is it just Columbia or is it Columbia and Cornell? And we merged. A lot of medical mergers failed, but by and large, I think the pandemic has forced most of us that we have to cooperate to, to survive. It's, it's an existential threat. That yeah. Well, also, it's good to remember that the human is a herd animal, and we were never designed to survive as individuals. We were designed to survive by caring and loving each other. We're all part of that herd. That's right. The, the other thing that I would emphasize sometimes superficially, but to point out that superficial differences like skin color is one gene. Basically, we all have a common genetic aspect and we all came out of Africa together. So I think in terms of recognizing genetics and 
what Jai is saying is where herd species is exactly that. So I, I think that's the benefit unwittingly of this uh, pandemic. Well, I think that's a nice uh, spot at which to stop because it's a high point, I think. And uh, I want to thank, thank everybody for uh, collaborating and cooperating in this great little round table today. And I, I'm looking forward to uh, collaborating with you all sometime in the future. So yes, uh, I, I think gratitude is also one of the most wonderful, refreshing emotions. And so I would really like to express how much gratitude I have to each and all of you for joining us with this today and making it such a rich program. Thank you. Thank you, Beverly. Yeah. Thank you, Terry. Uh, a, a real pleasure, Beverly. Thank you. Thank you, Beverly. Terry, too. Thank all of you. Well, great have a great to see day. you, Allison. All right. Bye, Jerry. Bye bye. Take care, and, everyone. And thank bye. you, Alex. <laughs> yes. Bye bye. <laughs>